Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 60. One of Ferrer Maillol's last coherent recent thoughts, as Contessa Lurilatha herself dragged him by the scruff of his neck into the temple torture chamber, was that he has now realized what kind of project disaster surpasses starting a god war. It's being told that one of your stupid oversights just managed to ruin a lot of hard work put in by Aspexia Rugaton, Contessa Lorilatha, and Gorthaclec, all of whom are now personally pissed at you, and Gorthaclec will be visiting you during your stay. Ferrer Mayol is currently driven into a rather extreme mental state and begging Asmodeus to do something, anything, to deliver him. Asmodeus does that very, very rarely, as one might expect. As it happens, though, Ferrer Mayol is currently in a state unusually apt to receive messages from Asmodeus, who has a message to deliver. It conveniently concerns a matter on which Mayol has already been partially instructed. And Asmodeus does need to do this often enough, if very, very rarely, that people ever hear about that time Asmodeus did it once. That way they'll go on sincerely pleading to him, in the extremity of their torture which he enjoys. Besides, it's amusing. Have a vision, tiny squirrel. Asmodeus, in his finite mercy, has given you a temporary reprieve from all the infinite torment that will someday be yours. Eight minutes later, there's a knock on Keltham's door. Keltham is sufficiently relaxed that he'll take a moment to see if Carissa does anything about this without him having to speak. Yep, she can get the door. She wasn't particularly expecting an answer that fast. Ah, says a young-looking palace page boy who wouldn't be out of place in Taldor and would never actually be seen in Cheliax, sounding audibly sort of stuttery with annoyingly long pauses between stutters. Ah, um, are you, uh, are you... Sivar, I have uh, a message for, uh, uh, Keltham? While he stutters, rapid messages delivered by magic where Keltham can't hear. Queen's transcript is ready for Sivar. Asmodeus has given them a directive to move Keltham to a new location, one that will somehow be more protected from divine interference than even the palace, as soon as Aspexia can get a new forbidden spell and put that up tomorrow at dawn. They're not to spare any expense this time. Cheliax is suddenly wealthier than expected, for reasons to be described later. The anti-interference divine protection should prevent any more oracles from being created, even if someone on site isn't soul-sold. Mayol is still recovering. Savar's input is requested in Mayol's place about the new project setup. Possibly Keltham's input should be solicited, too. What do they tell Keltham? What message does the page have for Keltham? Some lies seem required, and Savar is the only one who can authorize them. Okay, most urgent question is what to tell Keltham. They're setting up a new project site and want his input into anything it'd be particularly useful for it to have. If he asks for an explanation, the damage to the villa was more extensive than expected. Yes, Keltham's here. I can take a message or depart if it's secret. I, uh, uh... The page boy audibly pulls himself together. Damage to the villa. Uh, more extensive than expected, he recites. New project site, uh, being set up. Moving tomorrow at dawn. Does Keltham have, uh, input on anything particularly useful to have there? Whiteboards. 
Keltham wants to yell immediately, but that word does not actually exist in Taldane. Besides, he can use his own prestidigitation now. Is there a meeting I should be at? Keltham calls. They'd obviously have to set up a fake meeting for him and echo information to and from the real meeting. But resources are available to do that if Sever thinks they should. They're just passing memos around since half the people involved in the decision process are also essential for the war effort. He could meet with someone in acquisitions if he wants, though. Uh, it's mostly, uh, paper going back and forth because of, uh, the war and deciders being too busy. But there's still, uh, I was told, uh, you can talk to acquisitions if it's not a paper thing. Keltham pulls himself up to a sitting position in bed, thereby ending the massage. This sufficiently increases the probability that he should meet with Azidra again before leaving the palace tomorrow, that he should conserve his arrow energy for having a callable libido while he does that. I've got additional questions, but it doesn't sound like you've got additional answers, like why this is a tomorrow-at-dawn thing, is the palace considered not safe. I will think about what we need, and probably go talk to acquisitions in the likely event that this isn't a piece of paper issue. Who do I go to in acquisitions, if you were told that? The page names a random name, which can readily be allocated to whoever plays that role. How when does Sever want the Queen's transcript of Keltham for her to review? Security has decided to do additional screening of project-involved people for not being secret Kootheit agents. Then Carissa can be absent for her further screening and can get the review of the transcript done, as well as her punishment, which she expects she should take at the palace because Abrogale might want to watch. Security policy would usually call for Savar being escorted off as soon as she was told about the security review. Should they lie about that part, or should Savar be immediately escorted out after this? They should not lie about that, but they don't have to tell her now— it might be convenient to tell her in ten minutes after she's gotten Keltham's reaction to the relocation. Affirm. Somebody will check back in on you in ten. Anything else? Uh, that's, uh, it. The stuttery page departs. Weird speech patterns, huh? You wouldn't think somebody like that would find their comparative advantage running messages. Maybe he was scared for some reason. Well, if it's something bad they're doing, you wouldn't send somebody visibly scared of it, so probably it's just the whole god were followed by mortal war. Maybe that's just what talking sounds like at Intelligence 10. Keltham has never actually met anyone with Intelligence 10. Okay, apparently we've suddenly got to figure out all of our project infrastructure wish list, Keltham says. Better classroom setup, breakout rooms, larger white writing surfaces would be nice, even if prestidigitation. Library for reference books as we can get them. Material experimentation laboratory for melting metals. Biological laboratory where we keep the stocks of mice. Whatever you do for a magical laboratory. Regular so you want to be a wizard training setup for me. Am I missing anything? Do you want a cuddle room separate from your bedroom? Do you want a bedroom like this one? Plumbing? Hot water? Yes to all of those important things. There shall furthermore be, if at all possible, plumbing and hot water for my Carissa and predicting my future self's desires for other people who might end up with a Keltham possessive adjective in front of their names. It counts as flirting, by local rules, if you let it be known the criteria was as such. Nothing wrong with that, just so you know. Mm. Do you want the cuddle room stocked like would be conventional, or should it start out empty, to avoid spoilers? Storage closet to which you've got the key. You take things out of the closet as I figure them out? And you know... 
Considering the overall situation, I am not really concerned about it being overly fast relationship escalation if everyone in my research harem gets the simultaneous information that I might be interested in dating some of them. Keltham feeling possessive of his presence from Cheliax is a good thing. Should they bother stocking the library with the kinds of books we normally put in libraries, or are those bad enough to be useless, and you'd rather start with empty shelves and fill them out with specific things we specifically want? Unsure. Thinking. Reference books. Those meant to teach subjects. We should have no matter how terrible they are. For the more relaxed section, I think we at least start with some books that research haremets enjoy reading, or they state their personal favorites, and those get added to the library for others to read, maybe. I don't think I need any extraneous terrible books thrown in on top of that. Relaxed library section isn't as urgent as the reference section. Do we need to tell them? Like, kitchens and dining rooms must exist somewhere. I'm assuming that sort of thing gets handled well without our input, but I check that assumption. Obviously, they have favorite books. Only the lost dead have no favorite books. They'll handle that. I mentioned plumbing and hot water because that is not at all considered a thing. You just have everywhere by default and probably restricts the number of places they can put us severely. But most places have kitchens and dining rooms and, you know, servants and security and sunlight and so on. If you can't add plumbing to something that didn't previously have plumbing, then how does anything ever end up with plumbing? Also, servant doesn't baseline well. People with job responsibilities of keeping the place clean and cooking the food and running messages and going to the market for food. I think mostly plumbing gets added to new buildings, or when a building is majorly renovated in a way that involves knocking down most of the walls. Maybe for something this important, they'll get a high-level cleric in to add plumbing with stone shape. If it's a fourth circle cleric spell or lower, then I will do it. I do not want to fight the lingering good parts of my brain every day about whether I should be lending other people my bathroom. She's been taking down his requests on paper. I will note that it is a major cost to you for anyone to not have plumbing, even if none of us mind that much. It's a third circle cleric spell, but getting good results with it also takes practice. Though I guess maybe a kind of practice that's useful for you to get. I don't currently know about any third circle spells worth a spell slot, and have been spending them on truth spells and auguries and so on instead to save my god resources. And yeah, it is not implausible that I should get any practice with detailed magical work at all, but not urgently, so if somebody else can do that exact part, great. Quarters for outside experts, short term and longer term. Somebody who knows how to take care of mice, for example or a place to put up somebody for three days while we talk to them about metallurgy. Meeting rooms suitable for the chelish equivalent of very serious, for if Isidra and five of her friends decide that they need to come in and talk to us. Sweet, suitable for somebody like Isidra to stay in overnight if that's necessary. The fact that we're being moved out of the palace this fast is suggestive of them not wanting us here for any number of good or bad reasons meaning that they'd come to us instead of us going to them, presumably. Or do we just get a meeting room with a big two-way mirror that connects to the palace? He's got to remember that this is not actually a low-tech world. It's a magitech world. They may have video conferencing. Guest room for visiting royalty. Meeting room for visiting royalty. Paired mirrors exist. I'll note that's another option. No idea which is cheaper in wartime. I mean, not royalty. People who are important, like in governance and so on. Relatives of important people. What? Why? Ah, 
killed them. Yep, people who are important in general, not just royalty, but high enough quality they can host royalty. Keltham is confused about why relatives of important people require higher hosting requisites than important people themselves. But he is not going to ask, because it is probably not the most key question right now. After some further brainstorming, which is not going that fast anymore and currently consists of Keltham sitting with his eyes closed trying to think of another thing, Sever gets inaudibly poked about whether she's ready for her security review. Yep, ready. There's a knock upon the door. This time there's three sober-looking securities outside it. A security review has been required for Carissa Savar, one of them says. You have up to one minute to finish up any current tasks. Do not cast any new spells. Everyone on this project is being rescreened, one of the other securities says more politely to Keltham. Except for you, I suppose. Protocol says that as soon as Sever knows that's going to happen, she needs to come with us immediately and not cast any more spells along the way. Separately, Sevar, it's been pointed out that this project needs a new code name. We can't keep calling it this project in front of him. He may eventually ask us what we're calling it. It'd be good practice to have something internally that we can also use in front of Keltham. Reduces the prospect of him somehow overhearing the real name. The current actual code name is Project Pet Outsider, with the form of pet, implying that somebody such as Asmodeus owns that pet. Part of him wants to object that obviously Carissa is not the traitor, but that is not how real life works, and also it is not how tropes work. Understood, Keltham says, wondering why part of his brain just went all queasy. Well, no, it's pretty obvious. It's because that's Carissa they're security reviewing. But this, too, is not an objection that grown-ups make, and Keltham does not make it. Carissa. Do you just give the list to security to run to acquisitions? Do I take it down to acquisitions? The project can be Project Keltham or Project Lawful or Project Dathilan. She doesn't know how Keltham's translation even handles pet. Tasks finished, she says to security. They can probably take it down to acquisitions for you. I should see you in a couple hours, snort. You know, unless I'm secretly a Kuthite traitor. Not actually funny. Keltham doesn't say it. He really hopes his life doesn't run on tropes. Two of the securities peel off as soon as they're out of sight of Keltham's door and get on with their real jobs. The remaining one escorts Carissa to a room where she can review her notes and hands her a sealed packet that contained the Queen's slightly censored transcript of Keltham's thoughts. The security also recounts recent events at somewhat greater length. Rather, a lot of diamonds suddenly materialized around Atolmans's oracle, there's an obvious thought about where those diamonds might have come from. And their best hopes there seem to be actually coming true. Nidal shifted to a more tightly defensive, conservative, and dare one hope, worried posture afterwards. It's not the same kind of game over, as if Zonkuthan had been destroyed and his clerics depowered, but the remaining timeline is looking like months, not years. Nobody has any good idea of how Nidal managed to piss off Otolmans this much, except, obviously, that it had something to do with Nidal's intentions for Keltham. It nonetheless implies that people should tread even more carefully, which shouldn't, in fact, be possible in the first place when you are dealing with an Otolmans event. But nonetheless, do consider this is what happens when Otolmans gets pissed. If anybody manages to piss Otolmans off at Cheliacs instead, then perhaps all the diamonds in Cheliacs will be teleported to Lastwall. It is the considered belief of Grand High Priestess Aspexia Rugaton 
that this would be a bad idea and people should not do it, or come close to doing it, or think too much about doing it, or do anything that is not technically doing it, or do something that really shouldn't piss Atollmans off that much if Atollmans is being reasonable. Just don't fucking mess with Atollmans. If anybody thinks that Rugaton is trying to tell them anything especially complicated here, they should come to Rugaton for clarification about how she is really, in fact, saying something very simple. Or they can just kill themselves directly. Rugaton is happy with either outcome. Mayol, who received Asmodeus's vision while being personally tortured by Gorthaklek, briefly and barely pulled himself together to communicate the bones of their lord's vision. Asmodeus communicated a complex attitude about Otolmans's sudden gift, which suggests that Otolmans has well overpaid for the new project to have adequate security precautions. And while they shouldn't even remotely try to spend as much as Otolmans actually paid, they're not supposed to just take the money and run, either. The new project location will have actual fucking security this time, and any complaints about the budget should be considered in the light of Otolmans's apparent concern and corresponding generosity. Asmodeus's scent vision requires very strongly that Keltham needs to be not too far from Ostenso. Asmodeus's vision implies that Keltham should be within the designated region the moment it's safe. So as soon as a new forbiddance can be put up, somewhere Nadal hopefully won't know about. Hence, shortly after dawn tomorrow, when Rugaton can request a forbidden spell. They're currently thinking of renovating an old coastal fortress. Wow. Carissa's preferred thing to tell Keltham about this is the truth, that Cheliax is acting on orders from Atollmans. She thinks that Keltham is more likely to break rules in a way that offends Atollmans accidentally than he is to do so deliberately, and if he were doing it deliberately, he'd likely at least take cautionary measures like running it by Carissa first or maybe talking to Broom. Otolmans' intervention seems like the sort of thing that might be clearer from Keltham's perspective than theirs, and which is therefore going to end up being even harder to hide. She assumes Aspexia Rugaton will veto this, so she wants to give a story that isn't incompatible with telling him that later, which probably means just telling him that the relocation is for security reasons they can't disclose at this time. Carissa would appreciate a further briefing on known things about Otolmans at some point. Coastal Fortress seems fine. Keltham seems plenty attached to luxury, even knowing how desperately poor everyone in the world is. She isn't sure if it'll actually hit him for evil if they fund his luxuries with brutal taxation of some distant village, but it seems worth exploring. Plumbing is a must. She assumes from the fact the packet is sealed that she is intended to read it alone. Unusual policy, they could, in principle, tell Keltham that they're doing it on orders from Broom's God, so long as they don't tell him that Broom's God is specifically about world-destroying or multiverse-destroying threats, and allow him to go on thinking that she's mostly about preventing giant flaming wish craters. Rugaton would have to review the disclosure that this move was on Broom's God's request, but she wouldn't necessarily say no. Security also notes that Cheliax, of course, acts on only Asmodeus's orders. Even if Asmodeus perhaps bargains with other gods as part of his business, even Otolmans surely would not dare to instruct him so, or give him orders to pass along. And the generosity of her payment suggests that she bargained with Asmodeus from a position of weakness. To suggest that Cheliax is in any way acting on Otolmans's orders would be a lie, which Sevar is welcome to authorize explicitly. Weirdly, security does not hurt her about this. Her assumption is correct. 
Security will depart as soon as Sever wants to read the transcript. Hmm. With approval from the Grand High Priestess, she wants them to tell Keltham that their present understanding is that Broom's God of Messes requested the move and heightened security generally, and that Asmodeus instructed it, and maybe even that the instruction was specifically to go somewhere near Ostenso. The most obviously useful thing here is Keltham being reluctant to leave the area, though mostly Carissa's operating on the assumption that this has weird correlates she can't see. And she'll take a look at the transcript now. She does not ask if that means her mind won't be read while she reads it. It might instead just mean her mind is being read directly by Abigail or something. And anyway, my mind isn't presently being read is a bad starting point for thought. Abrogale's transcript contains a censored section right at the most exciting part about the second law, with notes saying that Keltham thought things about other people's knowledge of these truths driving them insane and possibly collapsing the universe, that most of his thoughts were incomprehensible ideas, with no remote conceptual neighbors in any language that Abrogale knows, and that the parts that did make it through were incredibly fucking disturbing. Abigail is obviously saying this because she knows how terribly curious it will make Saver about the one part she most wanted to know. But it is also true, and Rugaton requires further thought on whether Saver gets to see this. Abigail has included a more detailed explanation of why Savar is being tortured, with particular torture codes from her sheet being noted at particular points that all sum up exactly to the total amount of torture she received in her original note. The most severe torture code is annotated on the section where Keltham thought about his secret plan to establish a fully legible meta-level signal via the no-verbal objections order. This looks like a huge setback for their corruption plans. If Sever noticed this at all, which was her job, then she didn't think about it in words, and it didn't show up in her thought transcript, meaning Abrogale got blindsided here. Abrogale isn't sure how to recover. Sevar didn't say anything to the effect of how most masochists wouldn't go along with it even if Sever herself is fine. Or how she could do it for a month, no problem. But after any longer of not being allowed to scream and beg, she would probably start to feel sad. Maybe when Keltham gets to the appropriate point, Sevar can confess that she's starting to feel sad. Keltham is unfortunately explicitly suspicious that Cheliax is trying to lure him into rape. But even if Sevar's opinion is that any objection to Keltham's plan would have made him too suspicious, Sevar didn't apparently notice, and definitely didn't report it explicitly. Bad Sevar, go to your torture room. The second worst torture code is for Sevar thinking about how the Queen of Cheliax was being stupid for saying a worse version than the one Sever suggested, when, in fact, the Queen of Cheliax has higher perception than Sever can fucking dream of, and it was warning her off Sevar's version verbatim, possibly because Keltham would have been able to identify it as coming from Sevar. Sever's failure to imagine that the Queen of Cheliax could have any good reason for presuming to not do exactly what Sever said reveals an actual problem of subordination here, and that's why this punishment is severe. Thinking about lighting Abigail on fire, despite knowing you might get punished for thinking that was not the problem, that's just flirting and will be dealt with separately. The third Severus Torture Code, also appearing in the original sum of codes Carissa was given, is the fee for making the fucking Queen of Cheliac spell all this out for Savar in the annotations, B-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1
because Savar apparently cannot imagine her queen ever being professional about anything. Okay, you know what? That's actually completely reasonable. And it's true that Carissa has been having a hard time imagining her queen being professional about anything, though in her defense, that's because... Well, the thing Keltham said about how a pragmatic person in the queen's position would simply have sex with someone other than Carissa. But the queen is who she is and wants what she wants and is clearly quite good at her job while wanting some things that offer constraints on how she does her job, and Carissa was in fact underrating that, internally, assuming the queen was less capable than she was, and the punishment is warranted, and she should have assumed the punishment would be warranted. She'll get it done before she leaves for a coastal fortress in Ostenso. She's extremely annoyed about the part she really wants being censored, but she thinks nonetheless she understands the second law stuff well enough to be working around. Now, and well enough to be considering some strategies like saying dramatically ironic things that have no payoff at all because reality doesn't actually pay attention to dramatic irony. Keltham made a face when she asserted she wasn't a Kuthite spy. She has several ideas for working around the no-order thing, though she didn't see what Keltham was playing at until the transcript and isn't delighted by it. Firstly, she's not actually sure that it wouldn't ding a person for evil if they are in the habit of ordering their slaves not to refuse them and vaguely intend that, if ever disobeyed about that, they'd stop the game and let the slave go. In Carissa's particular case, it's going to be more complicated, but as a general order, Keltham's in the habit of giving, it seems in some ways advantageous. Maybe they can arrange for him to give that order to someone else who won, We'll understand Keltham's intent as the obvious, you are not entitled to refuse me, so don't. Two, has adequate self-control and won't in fact trigger it. And three, this one might be inconvenient, will react with arousal to treatment they desperately wish they weren't subject to. And then make it gradually clearer to Keltham over time that... The reason he's being obeyed is because he's entitled to obedience, not because it's sexy, per se. Secondly, Carissa's planning to eventually raise with Keltham that always following orders is in fact less sexy than sometimes breaking orders and being suitably punished for that, so hopefully he can just not update the orders about no as they gradually transition to a model where he doesn't have her obedience so much as the right and means to compel it. Can someone alert Carissa, please, when Miles competent to take over project duties, and in the meantime hand her any project-related work that's been sitting so she can hand it off to him in relatively good shape while she goes for her punishment? She's not scared, even though she's definitely never had half an hour before and knows this kind of thing is not linear in effects. That would be pathetic, and she's not that pathetic. Project stuff. They're only giving her the things that other stuff is urgently waiting on, but that's still some work, and she's not going to be as fast at it as Malyal. Keltham's requests to requisitions are all things that would be routed to Savar anyways because Keltham requested them, and who knows what he's thinking or how he'll react if anyone says no to anything. The requests now have budget line items attached to them, but are otherwise the same as they submitted, basically. Savar needs to decide whether to sign off on each of them, if she signs off on absolutely everything, including the two-way mirrors, 
The total cost will be somewhere around the vicinity of a plus six intelligence headband. She's going to reject the mirrors for now, both because they're a big chunk of the budget and because the mirrors are a sense in which Keltham would be less contained and she gets the sense that what Atollmans wants is Keltham maximally contained. She approves most of the other things. She is definitely not experienced at this, but still within an hour she can hand things off to Mayul in reasonably decent shape. If he's ready for a handoff, is he? Yeah, he isn't really but Sever got everything that was blocking further progress. Right. But they shouldn't both of them be incapacitated at the same time, probably, so she'll take her punishment later. What's the less pressing stuff? Note to self, which she doesn't really think she needs, avoid angering Gorthoclek. Okay, here's some less pressing stuff. Also, this just in, Paracountess Isidra Thrun cordially requests your covert attendance upon her meeting with Keltham in 15 minutes. It's not clear whether security knows who Isidri Thrun is. He presumably knows there's no such paracountess. She'd be honored. Someone will need to hit her with Fox's cunning repeatedly. And maybe also Owl's wisdom. There are disadvantages to having your cleverness run out too far ahead of your sense. If they'll do their best on 15 minutes' notice, but of course a lot fewer wizards prepare Owl's wisdom than Fox's cunning. Abigail has a slightly nervous feeling at this point. She has gotten the verbal transcript about Keltham suspecting her, or rather Isidra, of Detect Desires. She is starting to understand why Savar is so nervous about lying to Keltham. Maybe she should have gotten it from transcripts, but living it is different. Most people, if you tell them something that they're supposed to believe, will act around you like they believe that one thing. Keltham builds a world in his mind where those things would have actually been true and just completely lives there. He lives in that world at you. And then you're stuck in whatever world Keltham has decided you put him in. Yes, she's still too busy for this. But Keltham is leaving the palace tomorrow morning, and even Abigail does not wantonly waste her teleports. She has a lot of places to be simultaneously. Paracountess Isidri Thrun, overly good person with an overly large intelligence headband, who definitely has a whole lot of magically enhanced perception but is probably not actually using detect desires on people, rises to greet Keltham as he enters an even nicer meeting room. Having a paracountess of Cheliax rise to greet him as he enters is going to be a courtesy that is, like, completely lost on Keltham. His thoughts show only a brief puzzlement about why Isidra would do that. Keltham quickly seats himself, his thoughts showing an intention not to waste Isidri's valuable time, he requested this meeting, and Isidre may not have her schedule cleared for it. I've probed my newfound sexuality some, and arrived at some answers, Keltham says. So first, I'm pretty sure that I do not currently want, for my own sake, to demand that Cheliax hand over Carissa to me, and I can appreciate that it would be missing the point to do it for hers. Maybe I'll find the gender trope inside me the sexual behavior pattern and way of thinking, that's the compliment of hers, where I actually want absolute power over Carissa enough that I want to go do that for myself. But it's not there or not awake yet, and I'm not doing that until it is. Asterisk. Baseline. Gender trope does not contain the syllable for the baseline trope. The sounds of the words are distinct. Oh, too bad, but not a definite no, and not offense that it was suggested. Understandable, and I believe very much correct. 
under present conditions, Isidra says. I won't say that the government of Cheliac stands ready to assist you in the future, but I do thus stand ready. She's taken the time to set up more two-way communication. This time, now that Sevar hopefully has any grasp of how to act slightly more professional around her. And now that Abrogale is not springing an elaborate surprise on Sevar. Pass to Sevar. Keltham's thoughts are glossing over earlier thoughts about how he can use Detect Desires, with your consent on general rather than that specific use, to verify that you still want him even if you're in his absolute power. His thought on a possibly acceptable relationship is that, for so long as you still want him, you'll have no choice but to have him. He doesn't seem to be thinking particularly on the morality of it. No, he's thinking that he's not sure what his civilization would think of that, but would be delighted to watch them get into an enormous fight over it. Well, that seems like progress. Yes, that definitely seems like progress, though actually she doesn't know how Phrasma would judge it either. It's much easier to be professional when one isn't having an elaborate surprise sprung on them. Indeed, some would conceptualize professionalism as involving minimal elaborate surprises sprung on their co-conspirators. Carissa herself, who is young and naive and knows little compared to her vastly wiser superiors in the palace, has no opinions on the question. My sexuality does not seem basically opposed to renting Carissa out to a woman I know, given sufficiently favorable conditions. It is not happy with strangers. I haven't asked my sexuality about men, because I don't, currently, really know any chelish men. Standard civilization gender tropes suggest higher resistance, but I haven't been able to ask myself. I think the three main conditions here are 1. Getting to know the Queen of Cheliacs like it all. two. Figuring out whether Carissa is all right with this, in a way that doesn't just trigger, hey, you can run a sword through me, and this isn't even a sword, so I'll be fine. And three is, uh, complicated. Any thoughts about one or two before we tackle that? I don't get the impression that I can just ask Carissa if she's fine with being rented, or can I? Keltham's thought processes are wordlessly trying and wordlessly rejecting sort of pre-thoughts about ways he could put his unspoken third want into words. It's not easy to read. Isidre will temporize by discussing want one, while Abrogale waits to see if Savar has advice on want two. The queen is, obviously, another very busy person, but considering your potential importance to Chaliax, it is plausible the two of you should meet in any case and you may as well do that before you depart the palace. I can try to arrange a meeting tonight. Though it would be nice to know, before that, that matters had been arranged to avoid any explosive runes going off in our faces as a result of unrolling that scroll. Mostly a want number three issue, I suspect. But I also cannot make any representations to the Queen until I understand the effects on Carissa, and how and if Carissa ends up being okay with that, and how I end up knowing that. Carissa thinks Keltham could reasonably ask her in what condition she expects to return, if rented out or if subjected to any number of other things, but should probably not be encouraged to just directly talk to her about everything because then their relationship will be too healthy and functional. She feels a pang about this, which she ignores. You could simply ask me about the effects of different scenarios, says Isidri, and I could give you an answer which would be quite good and reliable, based on having sufficient familiarity with Sever's kind of submissive. I suspect you're not going to accept that, 
so you can also ask Sevar in what condition she expects to return, if rented out. Or what happens to her if you subject her to any number of other conditions, if you don't want to highlight that one as one that she'll notice especially. That, if not some other things, I think you could ask her plainly. I apologize for not being able to simply join states of belief with you. But yes, the problem is that I don't just need an answer that's actually good. I need an answer I know is good. Two isomorphic problems from my perspective, but very different problems from yours. I, um, I think Carissa has some equivalent of what a Dath Ilani would call dignity, which translates via share language to Taldane dignity, but I suspect is really not the same thing at all. Carissa's dignity is that she is impossible to truly hurt, even by running a sword through her and then refusing to raise her, which is what makes it safe for the man to whom she's completely given herself to do anything he wants with her and not be afraid. And if we were all in Dath Ilan, she could tell me that was true, and I would maybe check in with a keeper first to see if they thought Carissa was in generally good. Epistemic health. Belief health. But then the fact that Carissa thought that was true about herself would be very reliable evidence. Because Dath Ilani know how to see within themselves if that sort of thing is actually true. The fact that I got trained in that explicitly and warned about a lot of pitfalls suggests that if that training actually did anything, Chelish people should actually be much worse at distinguishing what should be true about themselves, what they want to be true about themselves, from what actually is true about themselves. I'm worried that Carissa is just answering me from within her model of what Carissa should be, and that model is not rigorously separated and distinguished from what Carissa is which seems like the really obvious mistake that, say, I would make if you took all the Dath Ilani training out of somebody otherwise with my exact heritage. If I try to discuss this with my Carissa Modil, my Carissa Modil says back, that Chelish Dignity also says that it's her place to safeguard her own safety and not rely on anybody else to protect her when she's giving herself away, that it would be undignified for her to be relying on me to think about her safety. I don't then feel happy and reassured when my Carissa Modal says this back to me, and I don't know where to go from there. An observation that might be useful to Keltham is that, by the standards of Dathilan, it's plausible that almost no one is competent to know what they actually want and what they can withstand, and yet they do still have to make decisions and do things, and it can simultaneously be true that they might be wrong and that it is impossible to do better than treating them as if they're right— until one encounters actual reason to think they're specifically wrong about something specific. Trust withheld in full generality can be damaging. Another might be that one commonly solves this by hurting their Carissa to her breaking point, such that they subsequently know what it is, and Keltham probably literally isn't capable of that yet, but the fact he's not also means this isn't very urgent. I've sometimes made mistakes of that kind myself, Isidra says. By the standards of Dathilan, then, I'm a child, and except for you, there's nobody in Galarian who can raise me to adulthood or teach me how to protect myself. I nonetheless think I'd be upset if you told me that I wasn't allowed to have the sort of sex I find satisfying because I was not by Dathilani standards competent to decide that I wanted it. I think I'd actually be offended, even if you told me merely that you needed to check over my thinking and sign off on it first. And there's I feel like there's some even more precise way that Adathilani would say that thing I just said, going on your class transcripts. 
something more lawful to say about what people have to do when they're not competent and how they might be wrong. But if you don't specifically know that they're wrong and never trust them anyways, I haven't actually attended your classes, and I can't put it into words. Oof, yeah, that's valid. Let me think about that. Though it's a little too persuasive, maybe, like this is what happens when somebody with an intelligence wisdom headband, even if that's not really Thinkumph, just three components of Thinkumph, tries to bend their will on persuading you and presenting only one side instead of calmly listing out all the arguments and counter-arguments to be summed. She's supposed to what? Who does that? What the abyss is Abrogale supposed to do about that? Of course Isidre is trying to persuade him. She didn't come to this meeting without having any goals. Abrogale transmits Keltham's most recent thoughts to Sevar with a note that Abrogale doesn't think she can quickly grasp or adopt the Dath Ilani behavior that Keltham is thinking of and can only try to sound more. Why, of course, I'm totally telling you about all the downsides of this contract. Look at these three right here. Which she was already trying to do in places. Ah, Keltham. Carissa thinks her preferred phrasing might have been better in that regard, but yields to Abigail's superior splendor. It's like, it's like if the thing you're trying to do is figure out who to send on patrol, and if someone brings up that those two just had a bad breakup and won't get along. Your job isn't convincing them. They're wrong. It's figuring out what the best patrol group is with the new inputs. Act like the decision power is already yours and you don't need to convince anyone, and then like you need the patrol to nonetheless perform well against demons. One objection to what Abigail just said is that it proves too much. Keltham shouldn't buy and abuse literal children. Yes, he should, but they're not going to get him there yet. So it might be worth acknowledging his concerns as perhaps outweighing her clever response in some cases, but pointing out that Carissa was judged competent by her society to swear the world wound oath, which is as competent as her society is capable of acknowledging her to be, and so even if one doesn't want to declare everyone competent until proven otherwise, they could extend it at least to those who've served at the lawfulest place in Galarian. Modulo carefulness to not come across as too good at reading Keltham, but Abigail knows that. Keltham is now thinking that Isidra basically seems to be presenting a story about a search algorithm that quickly reaches quiescence, and then you've got to choose the option with highest expectation of utility, which, yes, Keltham supposes that's terribly mysterious if all the law is unknown to you. But isn't it obvious that Keltham wouldn't be here if his meta-level prediction process hadn't suggested that there was further value of information in trying to figure out the likely consequences to Sevar better than he can get by just asking Sevar? And Isidra hasn't even given him reason to believe that Sevar would be mostly probably right, just sort of presented a social story about why you have to act like you believe somebody's words, independently of whether they're true. And sure, there's situations where the incentives and payoff matrices are structured such that governance should just take people at their word, independently of what the prediction market says about the probability it's true, but like, at least ask. Well, actually, he can just ask. You've said, basically, that I should act like I believe Sevar regardless of the probability that she's right, but if she's only 10% likely to be right, that's probably a bad idea. Abigail supposes that's what she gets for prompting him into thinking about the law behind anything. I don't suppose it would help if I pointed out that Sivar was trusted by us to take the world wound oath, 
which is as mentally competent as Chelyak's can possibly acknowledge anyone to be. That she served, and served well, in the lawfulest place in all Galerion? I'd worry that the lawfulest place in Galerion isn't very much more lawful than the coldest place in the sun's core is cold. Your concept of an oath is something that gets your soul destroyed by Abaddon if you break it. And you do it that way, instead of the way that gods do it, because nobody here has enough law in them to swear what Dathilan would regard as a real oath. Though, maybe if I'd been to the world wound for longer than a few minutes, to talk to people knowing the language, I'd have a different impression. I suppose I did meet Carissa Savar there, which is something of an update about the general lawfulness level, though I got the impression from you that, even for the world wound, she was special. Keltham is now starting to worry that he's talking himself into a corner where he'll convince himself that he can't be sadistic to anybody because maybe all the masochists are just making a massive mistake about whether they're masochists. Keltham is aware that this thought is stupid, but he doesn't know how to prove it's stupid and then generalize the same proof to shoot down his Isidre reactive arguments for never being able to trust Carissa. Abigail will transmit all that to Sever. She is. But, Keltham, I think you are... Maybe disrespecting Galarian a little too much? We aren't quite as bad as a Dathalani child of the age to have as little training in law as we do. Your concept of how much competence corresponds to how much grasp of law is not correct for this place. Look, I get that I'm talking myself into a corner. I just don't know how to talk myself out of it. He certainly is helpful, in some incredibly bizarre way, to anyone who might possibly be trying to corrupt him and manipulate him to their own ends almost like nobody like her exists in his world. Abigail wishes she was more confident that this means she could take over the place in a week, with the poor naive deers offering her no resistance, and not that everyone like her was successfully hunted and slaughtered, and the memories of them erased from history except for keepers who still remember very well how to do it. If he feels really strongly about this, he could pay the Grand High Priestess to evaluate Carissa's competence— Probably that's a bad idea, for many reasons, but among them that Carissa doesn't actually know what the Grand High Priestess would truthfully say. What is the meaning of an oath is a hard question for us to answer, with our vocabulary, but it doesn't mean that oaths only mean to us their most obvious physical consequence. And many people who one way or another don't fear Abaddon still give their word and mean it, groping for a different basis for it to signify what it does. There's really something to be said for doing things and checking whether they have good or bad consequences, assuming the consequences are recoverable. Also, he could just directly bring this to Carissa. She'll in fact probably be upset and definitely at least somewhat turned off, but that's only a consideration against it, not absolute reason if he's too stuck. If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash AI. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.